From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. We are starting today talking about some new numbers. These have been uncovered as part of a Freedom of Information request and written about by Brian Pasifum, who is the Parliamentary Bureau reporter with the National Post. And Brian is back with us to talk more about what it looks like the federal government buy gun buyback program, what it could potentially cost. Brian, thank you so so much for joining the show today. Oh, good afternoon. Happy to be back. Uh, can you take us back a little bit before we get into the new numbers and what you've uncovered? Where are we at as far as when this was announced and what has been done as part of this program so far? Well, the uh, they, they, the government calls it a buyback. It's really, you know, it, really it's a confiscation of, of, of private property, to be totally honest. But it, that's always been sort of a part of the uh, the Trudeau Liberals, um, I guess, gun control policy. Um, that used to be, a, it was a voluntary confiscation, and now it's a mandatory one. That was uh, changed uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago after the Prime Minister was disinvited from the Equal Polytechnique uh, ceremonies, but I, I wrote about that earlier. But um, yeah, one of the big things that, uh, that really has never been really talked about from the government is the cost. Because what this, what this program involves is it involves expropriating uh, right like rifles that cost you know several thousand dollars uh from people and compensating them so really during the uh 2019 uh, election that number was floated between 400 and 600 million dollars and that, that's pretty much the kind of the last time you ever get any official word of that uh the parliament parliamentary budget officer last year uh or a couple years ago said that my cost upwards of 785 million dollars but um the this memo that uh the gunblog.ca uh the website they uncovered this over the summer and i um learned about it pretty recently uh was that these internal government documents back in 2019 put the cost of a man of, of their buyback program at nearly two billion dollars close to 1.8 billion um and keep in mind that that's before this 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 uh buyback program was 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 made mandatory this is just a voluntary one so obviously the more rifles they collect from from their owners the more money they have to give out plus there's administration costs and everything else so really this 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 program is just going to be incredibly expensive once uh, once everything's all said and done so that's a pretty big difference if you're going from, like you said, the original numbers between 400 and 600 million to now sitting at almost two billion dollars. That's a that's a big gap. It is a big gap because it's this is it's one of those things that's really hard to put a price tag on it because it's you know it's a we're dealing with governments here and you know nobody can uh, you know governments have made wasting money in Olympic sport, uh, particularly this government. Um, really, it's, it's it's one of those things that it's really impossible to say it's going to cost this much and that's how much it is because this it, it, is a kind of a program that's going to go on and on and it's going to, you know, there's obviously going to be a big spurt at the beginning, but, you know, just sort of the maintenance and the administration of this program is going to be expensive. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think a lot of the questions are being asked is, you know, how much, like, what can you buy for $2 billion? How many MRI machines or how many, people can you put into you know warm housing 
during the winter, you know, compared to something like this, you know, it's, it's a lot of questions are being asked about, you know, is this really a great way for the government to be spending money, particularly these days? And when you talk about the changes that were made, and I know you mentioned this, or you talk about this in the the piece that you've just written in the National Post, and and again the the change that was made in 2021, going from the uh, the uh, rifles and the, the the firearms that would have been voluntarily. Uh, sold back to being compulsory a lot because of it based on on lobbying from that Quebec uh, based group. I mean, it's very, very much political. It's not as though people who are opposed to this are, aren't sympathetic and don't understand where the group is coming from. But the question, and I know you've written about this in the past as well, there is a big question of we've been talking about this since what, 2019, this particular policy, all of the rifles that are included in this are still in the hands of those owners. And if that was the case, if it was truly about public safety, wouldn't there be more of an urgency to it? Well, exactly. You know, in, in, in one of the rifles that, uh, you know, it's incredibly notorious these days, uh, the AR, sorry, AR-15, which, you know, it, it's an incredibly popular rifle in Canada. A lot of hunters use them, sports shooters use them. Um, you know, there's, 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 I'd probably guess hundreds of thousands of these rifles in Canada right now. Um, so yeah, it really does come down to to issues of of, of you know is this business policy for political reasons or is it for public safety? And and I spoke to Gary Mauser, who's a uh, professor at Simon Fraser University, who's written a lot on sort of the the the, the costs of, of of these gun control policies. And he brought it up when I was speaking to him for my article. Is that you know you compare this one point eight billion dollar estimate to what uh, the government is, is spending on diverting uh, youth from gangs? You know, fifty million dollars for five years. You know, it's a pittance compared to $1.8 billion that, uh, you know, really could be used to fighting the root cause of, of gun crime, which is smuggling, uh, you know, things like that. You know, it's, you know, the police chiefs have, have spoken to, you know, countless government committees across Canada. Toronto's police chief uh, told a House committee a couple of years ago that, uh, you know, that most of the gun crime that he sees in his city is through guns that are smuggled in from the U.S., guns that are not legal for Canadians to own for whether it's the size, the type, the barrel length or whatever. So it really it's, you know, really the question is, you know, what is this money being used for and, and could it be spent in a better way to really make a true difference when it comes to improving public safety? Uh, there has been a court challenge, and I know you you mentioned this as well. And we uh, were speaking with the the Canadian Center for Firearms uh, Rights after that that federal court ruling. I know they are planning on, on appealing the ruling. Uh, is there a chance that this will be caught up in a court appeal and and won't and will continue kind of moving at the pace that it has been, which is not really at all uh, right through to the next federal election? Do you think? Well, it's 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 moved along at a glacial pace for a lot of reasons. You know, the court challenge. Uh, you know, I don't think we factored into it at all. But really, it's you know, particularly when you look at how many public safety ministers they've had over the past few years. You know, like, um, you know, it's you really have to to wonder where the you know the government's priorities are. They're you know they're you know it's it's you know things you know after the Nova Scotia shooting, this gained a whole new momentum. You know, Bill C twenty one was tabled, and then it just kind of petered out and uh you know so it really it remains to see what exactly is going to happen with this le legislation this is this is definitely going to be always going to be a wedge issue for any political party gun control so really it's uh you know it, this could be drag on long enough to be an issue in the next election who knows exactly all right well brian thank you so much it's always uh, lovely to have you on the show and talking about what you've been writing about so thank you so much for your time today 
Happy to be on anytime. Have a good day. We are taking a look now at some health news and why some community organizations are reigniting their call, saying the B.C. government needs to provide access to an HIV treatment that can greatly improve quality of life. Joining me to talk more about this is Sarah Chown, Executive Director of AIDS Vancouver. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, This isn't uh, something we talk a lot about, which I I guess on the one hand shows a bit of a success in that it's it's not making major news headlines. I'm talking about HIV and HIV treatments in general, but this is one specific type of treatment that isn't available in BC. Can you tell us a little bit what is this and where else can people get this? Absolutely. So over three years ago, Health Canada approved the first long-acting HIV treatment that's been possible. Um, And here in BC, the government is still blocking access. Um, The great news about long-acting treatment is that it can last up to two months at a time rather than taking a daily pill every day. And that creates a lot of freedom and additional privacy for folks living with HIV. And what kind of a treatment? Is it an injection or or how do people get the people where it is uh, available? How do people access it? Yeah, so this, uh, it is administered as an injection through a healthcare provider. But right now, although we have healthcare providers willing to do that, people um, have to apply and uh, jump through some additional approvals and paperwork in order to be potentially approved and, and more often rejected to even get those injections. And that's what we're hoping people can help us change by going to our website at aidsvancouver.org and writing your MLA, the Deputy Health Minister, and the Minister of Health. And is there an explanation given as to why for this treatment you have to go through those extra hoops or people have to do that? Yeah, so the, the criteria isn't based on the scientific evidence that we've seen or the Health Canada approval. And so we're not really sure why that criteria is in place here in BC when we know that there are other provinces and other plans across, across the country that don't have that arbitrary criteria. So it's not as though it's it's doing this or it's not your understanding that it's going case by case and you have to meet certain markers or there has to be a certain kind of a baseline that you would be suitable for this treatment or vice versa and, and others who maybe they're saying they wouldn't respond to it maybe as well? Yeah, so it is currently like a case by case basis where some people are being approved and some people are being rejected we're concerned that that is based on this arbitrary criteria that would say that a person must be able to prove they cannot even take daily pills. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just because a person can take a daily oral pill doesn't mean that they should have to. And it certainly doesn't mean people want to take that. So um, we're really looking to change that arbitrary criteria that people must be unable to take an oral medication in order to be eligible for this long acting treatment. Right. And and so you said it can act up to what did you say? Sorry, that it could it can provide prote- protection or act up to two months. Yeah. So this this new long-acting treatment will last up to two months in comparison to having to take a daily pill. Are there any side effects or is there any different outcome as far as what the long-acting treatment to what the medication does? Does it do exactly the same thing as the pills? Yeah, so all HIV medications have pros and cons, and we, we really want to see people living with HIV and their individual care providers be able to decide if daily oral pills or a long-acting medication would be the best answer for them. 
Um, and we know that HIV stigma today is still really alive and well. And as a result, even having HIV pills, whether in a backpack or a medicine cabinet or a sock drawer, um, can really be dangerous if someone else discovers them. And, and we know of cases where people might be kicked out of their home or their relationship or even experience physical violence when that happens. Hmm. And and you mentioned other provinces. So are there other provinces then since the Health Canada approval in 2020, are there other provinces where it is up to the patients and patients can choose whether or not they want the, the pills, that pill option, or if they want the long-acting treatment? Yeah, in other provinces, patients and their doctors are able to make that decision um, without sort of this case-by-case approval and additional paperwork that that is happening here in BC. So we're really looking, again, for, um, you know, the government to stop blocking access and and ensure there's open access the way there are in other provinces and, and other plans. Uh, do you think it's a, a cost thing or or if you're we're, we're trying to figure out why the government would be requiring this and rather than just making it an option that a patient and doctor could decide on, is it because it's a, a much more expensive treatment? So we know that price hasn't been an issue outside of BC and so we don't really see why that would be a unique issue here. And we also know that on average, the cost of um, daily oral treatment and the long acting medication um, is the same. Hmm. And so have you been able to find out uh, why that this is still the policy? I, I think just because generally when we're talking about governments not approving new drugs or new treatments, inevitably there is always a cost component to it. So if it's not cost, uh, it's, I'm, I'm curious what it would be that uh, that government would, would feel the need to still block this access. Yeah, this is a question that we're really hoping to hear from um, our decision makers around because uh, we agree we're not quite understanding what's going on there. And, you know, BC has been known as an international leader in HIV innovation and treatment. And we're really frustrated that BC is falling behind on long acting treatments. Do you have any idea how many people there are in BC then that would like to have access or at least be able to make the decision about accessing this treatment? Mm-hmm. So uh, here at AIDS Vancouver and within our partner organizations, we're hearing from people on a regular basis who want access to this and aren't able to. We don't have exact numbers, um, unfortunately, but it is you know something that we're all hearing about regularly from patients who want access, from healthcare providers who are ready to offer this treatment and are just unable to do so based on the current uh, arbitrary criteria. Do we have numbers or do we keep track then of of even how many people are living with HIV in BC? Yeah, it's a better question directed to um, some of the, like the Ministry of Health that would keep that. But, you know, it's around 8,000 folks that are living with HIV in BC. Right. And and so even, and again, I, I guess that even brings up more questions. Like you said, if it's not an issue of cost that the government doesn't want to take on, it, it does seem strange that for this particular treatment that, again, has been approved by Health Canada, there would be so many hurdles. Yeah, and, and, you know, we're really disappointed to see that folks living with HIV are not being heard in the process that's been established for long-acting treatment, and, and we'd really like to see people living with HIV get to make these decisions, um, healthcare providers that are telling us they're ready uh, be able to make that happen. 
And you mentioned as well that even there, there have been cases where if somebody's uh, HIV medication is discovered or seen in a backpack or seen uh, somewhere, there can still be a stigma. D- do you think, have we gotten to the point where we're not thinking about it as much? Like you said, even with 8,000 people in the province, which isn't a huge number, but is it that we're not thinking about it nearly as much as we did a few decades ago? And maybe that's why it's also not getting as much attention. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we know is that stigma around HIV often comes when people don't have the right information. So when people are, are, are scared for themselves, and we know that HIV cannot be passed in so many different circumstances. HIV can't be passed in social settings. Um, and I think, you know, the stigma really can come from that. And it really does change the overall conversation. And um it's a it's a real experience that folks uh, have, and that's one of the reasons we need long-acting treatment and we need that access now. Um, it's been a really long time to wait for folks. You can imagine both three years after the Health Canada approval and all the time that people have been waiting for this even to be scientifically possible. So we'd really, um, we really believe that long-acting treatment is, is part of the solution to the stigma folks living with HIV uh, can experience every day. Uh, you mentioned the petition. Is, uh, is it something that if people want to learn more about this or are interested uh, going to your website, will they be able to access it there? Yeah, so anyone can connect uh, today at our website, which is aidsvancouver.org, A-I-D-S-V-A-N-C-O-U-V-E-R.org. And you'll be able to find more information about why long-acting treatment is necessary here in British Columbia and help us stop the government from blocking access. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today and bringing us up to date on this. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Several egg farms in the Fraser Valley in this province have been hit with an outbreak of avian flu. So what does this mean when it comes to the product, to the animals on these farms, and the future when dealing with avian flu? Amanda Britton is the Chief Information Officer with the BC Poultry Emergency Operations Centre and joins us on the line now to talk more about this. Amanda, thank you so much for taking some time. Hi, Jill. Thank you. My pleasure. What are we looking at then as far as the number of egg farms that are currently dealing with outbreaks of the avian flu? Well, actually, I have some update on that numbers that I just got a couple of minutes ago. We actually have 13 uh, poultry farms, not just egg farms. Uh, 13 poultry farms in BC have been infected with avian influenza since October 20th. Six of those were just declared yesterday. Hmm. And and what does that mean, kind of bigger picture? Is that a large number of farms to see dealing with avian flu at this time of year? Uh, there's uh, uh, between 400 and 500 poultry farms in BC, so um, the actual percentage is quite low. Um, that being said, for those individual farmers, it's quite devastating. Um, but we're not um, worried about food shortages or anything like that at this point. Uh, does this mean that uh, the birds on these farms, uh, that, that uh, I know that avian flu can be fatal to them, but does it also mm-hmm. mean that birds on these farms will need to be destroyed? Yeah, avian influenza is fatal to uh, domestic poultry. So um, what we do is humanely euthanize them before they suffer too much from the disease. And so dealing then with the, with the increase in numbers, so 13 poultry farms, do you have any idea? And mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't, that's fine. But do you have any idea what, mm-hmm. what does that mean as far as the numbers of birds that will need to be euthanized? 
You know what? I've been trying to get that number and I haven't been able to get it yet because we had so many declared just in the past 24 hours. I just don't have access to those numbers right now. All right. Um, does Is this something when we talk about a fall outbreak of the avian flu, is it something that we do see seasonally uh, and, and it's dealt with when we see it? Or is there anything particularly or, or different about this outbreak? Yeah, so it does. It is a cyclical disease. It follows the spring and fall migration of wild birds. Um, wild birds are typically the carriers and they pass it on to domestic birds. Um, the difference this year is we haven't actually finished with the fall outbreak from 2022. This is considered the same outbreak because the disease never went away. Um, so that's what's a little bit different this year than we've seen in past seasons. Hmm. And you mentioned that these are poultry farms, not just egg farms, but I know we had mm-hmm. been talking about egg farms as well. Uh, is it different when we're talking about a farm, say, that's, that's raising chickens or that is a chicken, like a meat producing farm, as opposed to one that also has eggs? Uh, the disease hits the birds in very similar ways. So whether it's uh, chickens for meat or turkeys or egg farms or even ducks, Um, The birds are still infected by the disease in in similar ways, and it is um, nearly 100% fatality for those birds. All right. And and you mentioned the farmers as well, that that yes, this does happen. It's cyclical, and and we can expect Mm -hmm. it this time of year. But that must be, though, devastating for a farmer when when the entire population of birds on the farmer's land needs to be euthanized. Yeah, it is extremely devastating. Um, these, these people work with and, and live with animals all the time. This is what they've chosen to do for a living. So um, they love their animals and to lose them to a disease uh, is absolutely devastating. We have made mental health supports available to all poultry farmers. Um, and then we also have some peer-to-peer stuff going on as well. So no one is ever left alone to deal with such a devastating loss. Is there any concern for human health? No, there is not. Um, avian influenza is primarily a, a poultry disease, or sorry, an avian disease. Any kind of bird can ca- can catch it. The only human cases have been in um, people who have had prolonged exposure with no protective equipment to sick and dying birds. And in that case, do, do humans, then if somebody is in that scenario, somebody that's obviously, or I guess been working on one of these farms, is there treatment for mm-hmm. somebody that does fall into that category? Yes, there is treatment. Um, people have recovered. Uh, I have to, I can't remember off the top of my head, there have been a couple of deaths um, in humans. But again, this is people who have prolonged exposure. You're not going to get it driving through farm country in Chilliwack. All right. Um, and, and not that this is the number one concern right now, but I know the question has come up that if we, we are seeing this expansion or uh, the, the outbreak grow, and like you mm-hmm. said, it's now 13 farms, do you think is this going to have an impact or could it potentially have an impact on the price of poultry or the price of eggs? Well, the great thing about Canada is we have supply management when it comes to poultry products um, as well as dairy. And what that means is it keeps the prices fairly stable. Um, We can also bring product, eggs, turkey, chicken meat in from other provinces that are not affected. Right now, BC is taking a bit of a hit, but our friends in Manitoba, for example, are not. So um, if needs be, we can bring product from other provinces. 
All right. Um, and, and when you talked about the uh, the jump to 13 poultry farms, so given that mm-hmm. so we're around, it, what is it today, November 7th, given the, the mm-hmm. month and the fact that this is cyclical and kind of seasonal, uh, do you expect there will be more spread of this of this outbreak? It seems extremely likely that there will be more spread. I mean, of course, we always hope that it won't happen, but we're early in well, we're in prime fall migration right now, so it seems likely that we will see more cases. And when you me- you mentioned this as well, the migration and the birds moving, I mean, it must be very difficult to keep birds that are migrating uh, to keep them uh, away from <laughs> each other. Uh, but yeah. is, that's the main the main cause as far as it is it moving. Because I, I do remember, I think it was back in 2003 or 2004 covering this, and there was a lot of talk of movement from farm to farm as well and trying to stop people from doing that. So is that also something that, that can kind of help not spread uh, the, the avian flu or is it just it's migrating? birds and you can't really fight that well it's interesting you should bring up 2004 we we did learn a lot from um that outbreak and what you're talking about the lateral spread from farm to farm we're not seeing that anymore we have a very strict biosecurity program in place to prevent such a thing what we are seeing is the um infection from a wild bird so you know a wild bird flies over a farm they poop it the virus is in their poop and um, domestic birds interact with it. Um, it, it so that's mostly how it's spread. The, the science, scientists are studying other ways it's spread, but it is mostly from wild birds. We're not getting the mechanical farm-to-farm transfer that we saw in the past. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, for joining us, Amanda, and bringing us up to date and that uh, very uh, latest information on this. Uh, I appreciate you making the time today. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.